We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the topic is more questions than answers, more Q&A. I'm going to answer the question, are conservatives guilty of being legalists? And is there a difference between a conservative and a legalist? I'll also respond to the question of, are Christians Pharisees by definition? And by the way, what is a Pharisee? And if we have time, I'll respond to the question of agnosticism. Is it the most honest position? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening to the show. Today's topic is more Q&A. I'm going to respond to a couple different questions, maybe more. It depends on how much time we have in the show. And as I said, I'm going to respond to one question where it's basically an accusation. The question is, why do conservatives insist on imposing their dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense on all the rest of us? That's an exact question that I received from, um, shall we say, somebody who isn't necessarily a fan. I'll also get into the issue of conservatism versus legalism. Is there a difference? Uh, are conservatives and are Christians legalists by definition? I'll deal with that. And then I, asked, I had a very good question that isn't necessarily antagonistic, but it was from an agnostic, somebody who says they don't know whether or not God exists. And this person is essentially asking a rhetorical question, isn't that really the most honest position we can take? So with that said, let's take an early break. And when I get back, we'll pick these questions apart and I'll give you my response to each of them. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, so welcome back to the rebellion. The first question I want to respond to is basically 
an extension of yesterday's show where I talked about how progressives will use absolutes to refute absolutes. This question about pharisaical nonsense is essentially a play on the same question, but I want to go back and revisit this again because this is a fallacy. This is a tactic that is used over and over again in our culture. None of us can go through any given day, whether it be in our profession, in our job, or even in conversation with our family without somebody digressing into this self-refuting way of criticizing conservatives and Christians. So I want to read the question and then I'm going to give you my response. Here's the question again, directly from somebody, like I said, is who's definitely not a fan of my worldview. The question is this, why do conservatives insist on imposing their dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense and all the rest of us. One more time. Why do conservatives insist on imposing their dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense on all the rest of us? Close quote. Well, here's a very brief response and use it or at least hear it within the context of my commentary from yesterday's show. So first, I'm going to ask this questioner a couple questions. Again, what's Jesus' style of apologetics? Rather than launching into a debate, into the argument immediately, rather than giving an answer forthrightly, Jesus often just asked a good rhetorical question. Again, the key examples here would be, whose face is on this coin? Why do you call me Lord? And which one of you wants to pick up the stone and throw it? And then the Son of God is quiet. The smartest man who ever walked the face of the earth doesn't say anything. He doesn't argue. He actually just asks a question, and then he shuts up, and he watches the worldview of his opponents implode. So I'm going to try my best to just ask a question or two here. So again, I'd say this to this person, and if you're asking this, or if you're being confronted by somebody who asks this question, You might want to just take notes here. Listen up. So I would ask a couple questions about this person's comments, okay? First, dead right or dead wrong nonsense? Really, doesn't that question, why do conservatives insist on imposing their dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense on all the rest of us, doesn't that question presuppose that the person asking it is dead right in condemning other people who he thinks are positioning themselves as being dead right. Again, it's rather self-refuting. Doesn't his very premise, the very premise, condemn his own ontology and his own epistemological assumptions? Again, ontology is reality and epistemology is how do you know? So he's saying, that he knows that conservatives are imposing their dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense on everybody else, but isn't he positioning himself as being dead right and condemning others for being dead right? Because if he doesn't think he's dead right in asking the question, then why did he ask it in the first place? Do you understand what I'm saying here? So I would say this to him, doesn't your very premise condemn your own ontology and epistemology? It seems to me that your, your presuppositions are collapsing in upon themselves here because you're claiming to know something 
epistemologically here, because ontologically, you're saying that it's real that conservatives are always imposing their dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense on everybody else. And again, that makes him very much in the camp of those who claim to think they're dead right and condemning everybody else for being dead wrong. Conservatives first and foremost among them is what he's doing right now. So again, I'd say this to him. Maybe, just maybe, you've uncomfortably stumbled into the technical definition of nonsense. (laughs) Your position literally makes no sense. And as I've said before, righteous indignation directed to those who you think are guilty of always thinking they're right is akin to saying, I know nothing can be known. I'm sure nothing is sure. I am absolutely confident there are no absolutes. So a little refresher course in the law of non-contradiction might be in order here for my questioner. Self-refuting. You can't claim that everybody else is guilty of being dead right and dead wrong without you taking the position that you are dead right and condemning them for claiming or believing that they're dead right. So you put yourself in the camp that you're accusing. Now, let's before I get off of this question, let's talk about the issue of Pharisees. The word pharisaical does not mean what this man seems to imply. It does not, does not reference the belief in an objective immutable truth. That's not what being a Pharisee is. Again, if that's what it did mean, then he himself is a Pharisee because he believes it's true to condemn others for thinking that they're always right. He believes he's right to condemn other people for believing in an objective truth. So if the word Pharisee is a reference to the belief in an objective truth, then he objectively thinks it's true that I'm wrong and that he's right. So again, it doesn't mean that. The word Pharisee doesn't mean that you believe in objective truth, truth that's unchangeable, immutable, enduring, and absolute. What the word Pharisee really means, and it's really quite simple, is it's an attitude of self-righteousness, of arrogance, and of personal superiority. The word Pharisee, biblically, as well as, as it's evolved over the centuries since, the time of Jesus, connotes a love affair with self, okay? It's narcissism. Narcissist gazing with admiration at his own reflection in the pool. Or it's kind of like Carly Simon's hit song, You're So Vain, I Bet You Think This Song Is About You. A Pharisee is someone who thinks it's all about him and not all about truth. Frankly, somebody who believes in the standard of truth being the judgment of himself and all other people would be the antithesis of a Pharisee because a Pharisee thinks it's all about him, not truth, that he is the judge of good and evil and what's right and wrong, and that he can look down his nose at those people who don't measure up. So when someone elevates his or her values and opinions as being superior to God's self-evident truths, that person is indeed a Pharisee. And the irony here is that left-of-center progressives tend to commit this error much more so and much more boldly 
than do any of their conservative brothers and sisters. Uh, the habitual reenactment of the original sin here is something that we who live in a postmodern era must, we, we just rush toward justifying our claim that our personal constructs are superior to the conversation that comes from tradition and reason and experience and scripture. Tradition, truth, natural law, the, the Tao, all of which ironically, are more conducive to a liberal exchange of ideas than are the views of those who proudly wave their banner, like this man that's questioning me, from the progressive left. I'm not the one calling on PC hate speech police to silence my opposition. I'm not the one doing that. It's the progressive side of this particular question who seems intent on pharisaically shutting down the debate because they're offended by, quote-unquote, my dead right and dead wrong pharisaical nonsense. Gnosis, this, this idea of superior knowledge and its temper tantrum to be liberated from the very self-evident truths that give knowledge any measure of knowability is just the first step down this path that led Robespierre to declare himself to be God and then get his head chopped off by the guillotine that he created. So they die on the very altar of their own making because they claim that you and I are guilty of being Pharisees while they elevate themselves in Pharisaical superiority as knowing more and having more gnosis than God himself and condemning everybody else who doesn't goose-step in obedience in their parade with an emperor with no clothes. All right, let's go on to the next one. I said I was going to answer this question of conservatism or legalism, and are they the same? So this was an exchange that I had a few years ago with a Christian college alumnus, and he was arguing that a conservative stance on objective truth and all the corresponding moral standards that come from that stance, that conservative stance is akin to a return to the legalism of days gone by, the legalism that this particular person grew up in in her given church. So here's the exact question. I'm concerned that conservatives tend to call for a return to legalism as the only solution to church apostasy and cultural decay. Legalism isn't the answer, close quote. Now I'll read the question one more time, then I'll give you my answer. I'm concerned that conservatives tend to call for a return to legalism as the only solution to church apostasy and cultural decay. Legalism isn't the answer, close quote. All right, now that's a statement but I'm going to respond as if it's a question. All right. First of all, I agree that legalism is not the solution to apostasy. I agree with that. Both legalism and apostasy are sins. And these sins result from the worship of our own intellect rather than the love of God. My background is not one that embraces legalism at all. And this is why I refuse to get caught up in things like the worship wars or other rules-oriented arguments regarding music or dress or denominational peculiarities and things like that. My passion 
is not for legalism. Okay, I want to make that very clear. My passion isn't for legalism and any of the corresponding self-righteousness that comes with it. But, and I want to make this very clear, but to the contrary here, I have a reverence for the way, the truth, and the life, and the corresponding humility that follows submitting to a way, a truth, and a life that's bigger than me. The way, the truth, and the life as, as personified in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. So, this issue of conservatism and legalism. I, I read once that there are two views of God, the God we want and the God that is. Colleges, churches, families, um, religious movements, Christian movements, whatever, are all prone to create the gods that we want. And the word, the truth, made flesh and dwelling among us, the revealed word, revelation, the Bible, scripture, in my view, is the only safeguard we have against subjective constructs, which are legalism or classical progressivism. The Christian church must have as its highest and unshakable goal the pursuit of the God that is, not the God we want. And arguing that we're guilty of legalism because we want to conserve that truth is really fallacious. It's, it's a distraction. It is a false claim because a conservative recognizes that there is a truth above him or her. A legalist will actually start defining those truths within his own world and imposing those truths, his truths, on somebody else. So honoring the word and conserving it and obeying it does not make you a legalist. In fact, there's a huge difference between a conservative and a legalist. And I understand the difference. I am conservative, but I am not a legalist because at the end of the day, it's not about what I think, it's about what God has said. Does that make sense? All right, let's go on to another question. This one is from a friend of mine who is basically asking a very honest and humble question. Can we really know anything? Can we truly know whether or not God is real, whether or not he exists? And I'm going to use C.S. Lewis's response in The Great Divorce to respond to this question. Um, I think that's maybe a better response than one I could ever come up with. So here's the question. Isn't agnosticism, frankly, the most honest position? We really all know that we can't know God. He may be out there, but none of us really knows anything about anything other than our own unique experiences and personal realities. You want me to read that again? Okay, here you go. Isn't agnosticism, frankly, the most honest position? We really all know that we can't know God. He may be out there, but none of us really knows anything about anything other than our own unique experiences and personal realities. Okay, that's the question, and then a following comment or position by this particular questioner. All right, here's my response. First, on the question of agnosticism, I personally think what we are dealing with here is pride, pure and simple. When you boil it all down, the agnostic says this, I am the end of all that can be known. In fact, that's what this guy just told me. He said, we really know that we can't know anything other than our unique experiences and personal realities. So really, the agnostic, I think, is saying this. I'm the end of all, of everything that can be known. 
I'm wiser than those who are so intellectually naive as to believe in something they can't prove. That's what the agnostic is saying, right? So, if we can agree on that, that that's really the position of the agnostic, I want you to remember something. God laughs at the wisdom of man. Our wisdom is no better than his foolishness. In fact, I'm going to quote from 1 Corinthians 8, 2 through 3 here, and I'm going to use the message. I generally don't use that particular translation, but in this case, it's spot on. All right, 1 Corinthians 8, 2 through 3. We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Again, 1 Corinthians 8, 2 through 3. One more time on that one. You need to listen to this one for the day. We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Now, C.S. Lewis talks about this. I said I'm going to use his response because it's perfect. He essentially writes about this in The Great Divorce, where he scolds the agnostic. And remember, he knows from whence he comes. He was one of these agnostics for the major portion of his life. And as a convert to Christianity, he's now responding to his own class, his own people. He's responding to himself. Essentially, he's scolding himself here as he writes the following. Okay, He's scolding a young scholar, a young agnostic in the great divorce. And he says this, Our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas, and we plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. You know, we just started automatically writing the kind of essays that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. When in all of our lives did we honestly face, in solitude, the one question on which all else turned, whether after all the supernatural might not, in fact, occur? When? Did we put up one moment's real resistance to the loss of our faith? Close quote. So Lewis is admitting that the scholars in the academy, the smart folks, weren't being honest, that they were just going along and parroting the popular ideas. Again, writing the kind of essays that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. When in our whole lives did we honestly face in solitude the one question on which Everything else turned, whether or not the supernatural might not, in fact, be real. When, he says, did we put up one moment's real resistance to the loss of our faith? And then he goes on and he says this. You know that you and I were playing with loaded dice. We didn't want the other to be true. We were afraid of crude salvationism, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age, afraid of ridicule, afraid... Above all, of real spiritual fears of hope. So, again, he's being very honest about his own mind and his own soul. And where he was just five seconds ago before he decided to submit to a higher authority than his own mind. Then he finally says this, Having allowed ourselves to drift, unresisting, unpraying, Accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires, we reached a point where we no longer believed the faith. Just in the same way, a jealous man, drifting and unresisting, reaches a point at which he believes lies about his best friend. 
Once you were a child, he says, once you knew what inquiry was for. There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, says Lewis. You have gone too far. Thirst was made for water and inquiry was made for truth. This is C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. And I think this is the best response to that temptation in all of us, because all of us have doubts. All of us are like the Roman centurion who looked at Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. So we all have a lot of agnosticism in us. At least I know I do. But, but C.S. Lewis is, is, is pointing out the fact that we're just going along with the current, the flow, the stream of ideas, because it's the easiest thing to, de- to do. We're not resisting. We're just saying the kind of things that get good marks and writing the kind of essays that win applause. We're not putting up any resistance. We're not actually thinking about, in the solitude of our lives or in the public square, about the one important question that upon which everything else turns, and that's whether or not God might actually exist, whether or not the supernatural might in fact occur, to quote Lewis there. You know, he says, that we were playing with loaded dice, and we're the ones that loaded them. We didn't want God to be true. We were afraid of being criticized for our salvationism, our conservatism, our Christianity. We were afraid of a breach with the spirit of our age. We didn't want to be subjects of ridicule. And above all, says Lewis, we were probably most afraid of the spiritual fears that it actually might be real. And we'd have to do something about it if indeed it was. You know, George MacDonald tells us in The Curate's Awakening that to know Christ is to do his will. And that in doing so, in doing Christ's will, in doing what he says to do, we will finally come to know him. This is kind of a paradox. It's kind of a reversal of what we've been taught. Does your belief come first or does your behavior? Well, in The Curate's Awakening, George MacDonald suggests that maybe your behavior can precede your belief. So if you are a doubter, why don't you just try doing the things that Christ said to do and see what happens? So again, this is what MacDonald is saying. To know Christ is to do his will. And doing so, we will finally come to know him. This is one of the great epiphanies in my personal life. This is part of my personal testimony here. Because I'm a, a wrestler. I'm a, I'm a Jacob, if you will. I'm always wrestling with God. I've wrestled with doubt. I, I resonate with what the centurion says to Jesus. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I, that's why I say there may be an agnostic in all of us. Some of you listening right now may disagree. You may say, well, I don't, I've never struggled with that. And if that's the case, great, bless you. I'm glad that God has not given you that temperament because it's a burden. It's a burden. But when I read The Curate's Awakening, and I read this simple statement that to know Christ is to do his will, and doing so, we will finally come to know him. That is powerful. You know, The Curate's Awakening is about a pastor. I've talked about it before on this show. I've got two minutes left, and I'm going to hit this really quick. It's about a young pastor who takes his first job out in the hills of Scotland. goes about his daily duties, does his job, reads out of the book of prayer, reads pre-prepared <laughs> sermons that his predecessor left for him, 
administers communion, whatever. But then he's confronted by an agnostic who happens to be in his church who says, you know, I don't think you really believe all this and you know it. Well, it takes the curate aback, it takes the pastor aback, and he actually seeks the counsel of a wise old sage in the church. And he says, how do I know if the story of Christ is true? And the wise old sage tells him, if you want to know if the story of Jesus is true, go read the Bible, read the words of Christ, and then do them. That's all he says. So for the rest of the book, the curate is out there trying to take the sage's advice to heart. He's reading the words of Christ, and he's trying to do them. He doesn't know yet whether he believes Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, but he is doing what he's been counseled to do. He's reading the words of Christ, and he's doing them. Well, after an entire book of doing this, preaching about it, and being honest and vulnerable about his journey, he comes before his congregation at the end of the book, and he says this. He says, In our attempt to obey the words recorded as his, we will see grandeur beyond the realm of any human invention, and we can boldly cast our lot with those of the crucified. I want you to hear that again. In my attempt to obey the words recorded as his, I've seen grandeur beyond the realm of any human invention, and therefore I cast my lot with those of the crucified. That's powerful. That's how you deal with agnosticism. You go to the words of Christ and you do them. You behave, and then ultimately you might believe. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.